This is a podcast from Real Life Sango in Clarksville, Tennessee. Thank you for being a part of our online community. We would love for you to join us at 8.30 or 10 a.m. on Sunday morning at the City Forum. In the meantime, if you would like to share a prayer request, make a financial contribution, or take a step at Real Life, you can text MISSION to 97000. Now enjoy the podcast. All right. Good morning, church. As Pastor Tim said, we're going to be starting uh, for the next three weeks going over nine different attributes of God. And so what, what I want us to do is understand first what is an attribute of God. An attribute of God is defined as the characteristics or qualities of God that constitute him as what he is. They should not be thought of as something attributed to or predicated of him, as if something could be added to his nature. Rather, they are inseparable from his being. This is who God is. And so as we dive into these attributes, the whole goal is for us to learn more about God, who he is as our father and these things, so that we can draw closer to him in our relationship. So I want you to understand first real quick that there are way more than nine attributes of God. We're just going to hit on these nine though. Uh, each attribute, none of us will be able to go up here and give, us, give it justice because it's an infinite aspect of an infinite being. So we're going to do our best. But third, let, these, let this knowledge draw you closer to him. Let this understanding of who he is draw you closer to him as your father and as your savior and as your friend. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for this time. Thank you for this day. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would send your Holy Spirit to just reveal to us who you are. Reveal to us more about you. Let us draw closer to you as we learn your character and, and, and the things that compose up the being that you are, the magnificent, infinite God that we, we worship and love. We ask this in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. So the first attribute we're going to talk about is God's righteousness. God's righteousness is defined as the quality or attributes of God by virtue of which he does that which is right or in accordance with his own nature, will, and law. So God is righteous. Everything he says and does is righteous. He is unable to be anything but righteous. So the Greek we're going to look at today in Romans 3.21, that word righteousness translates to a word that is defined as, as righteous or justice. So it means God's judicial approval. So God is the only one who's qualified to establish the standard of righteousness. So what does that mean to us? Romans 3, we're going to start in verse 21. It says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So Paul starts out talking about the law and the prophets. The law consists of the first five books of the Bible. This is where God has established his standard of right living. Then the the books following that, all the way up to the Gospels, are called the prophetic books, books of the prophets. So what we see in the Old Testament is an establishment of what God deems to be a righteous lifestyle. And then you have a pattern that Israel repeats that is evidence of our inability to meet that standard. We are not sufficient to meet the standard of God's righteousness on our own. So in, in the Old Testament, you'll see a cycle where Israel's in the desert in the wilderness, or they're enslaved and in bondage, and they cry out to God, and God hears their cries, and he rescues them. And then they glorify God, and they worship God for a time, and then they become complacent with God. And then they turn to their own selfish ways, uh, establish their own standard of self-righteousness, and they turn from God, and then God gives them over in their sin, and then they're right back in the wilderness or right back into bondage. And what we see here is this cycle that is evidence that 
we need a permanent savior, not an occasional rescuer. And so that's what God is trying to reveal to us and witness to us through the law and the prophets. It's also important to understand that in the old Levitical law, a lot of the basis for justification or righteousness was circled around physical acts. As long as I didn't physically kill somebody, I was not considered a murderer. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, if I have hatred for a brother in my heart, I've committed murder. The law also says that as long as I don't sleep with another person, I have not committed adultery. But Jesus says if you look for someone and you have lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery. So Jesus helps us understand that the law is not just about physical acts. We are called to a a righteous life with our entire being. So Jesus calls us to obedience with our entire being, not just our outward actions. And he also reveals the depths of our sinful nature and the hopelessness we have to earn righteousness. Verse 22, but it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So Paul right here unites all of humanity under two factors. We are all sinful beings, and we all have access to righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 24, being justified as a gift of, by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So Paul calls uh, being justified a gift. Some of your translations may use the term justified freely. What that means is we are justified without cause. There's no cause we can bring before the throne of God that justifies us being made righteous. God finds no reason, no basis in the sinner for declaring him righteous. He must find the cause in himself. So Paul elaborates on this as a gift. And the only thing you can do with a gift is receive it. But the problem is we as humans, we struggle to receive so great a gift. One commentator said one of fallen humanity's most difficult tasks is to accept righteousness as a gift. We have this longing to earn what we get. This is rooted in a self-righteous mindset. If we were able to earn our salvation, then we would have room to boast or to claim a portion of glory that belongs to God. God neither needs nor desires our help in doing what we could never accomplish. Verse 25 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he let the sins previously committed go unpunished. Verse 25 introduces us to this word propitiation, and it's in reference to uh, Jesus' crucifixion, his sacrifice. Jesus appeased or satisfied God's wrath through his sacrifice. That's what propitiation means, to appease God's wrath. The brutality of what Jesus endured in his crucifixion should lead us to understand the seriousness that God has towards sin and the cost that was paid for it. This Greek word that's used here, propitiation, is the same as the Hebrew word used to describe the lid of the Ark of the Covenant called the mercy seat. And so remember the Old Testament, the law and the prophets witness to God's righteousness. Back in the Old Testament times, they had a box called the Ark of the Covenant. Within that box was the Ten Commandments, God's standard of righteousness. On top of that box was a lid called the mercy seat. And this would reside in the place called the Holy of Holies. It was considered the holiest place in the temple. Only one person was allowed to enter, and that was the high priest. And he would do so once a year on the Day of Atonement. And he would bring blood that was sacrificed from the sacrificial animal and shed that blood on the lid of the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people. And this was how God established their understanding of with sin comes punishment. 
And so it's important to understand that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was never sufficient in, in salvation or covering of sins. It was to echo what Jesus Christ was going to do for them and what he has done for us, and that he is our high priest, and he stands before the throne on this very day as an advocate for us, and he shed his blood to cover our sin. And that debt has been taken care of. This symbolism richly portrayed the fact that a broken law stood between a holy God and his children. But through the shedding of blood, the place of judgment and estrangement became the place of mercy and reconciliation. Christ's death is therefore seen as the means whereby the legitimate demands of God for justice against a sinful race are fully met, leaving him free to be merciful to those who formerly merited only judgment. Romans 5.18 says, So then, as through one offense, the result was condemnation to all mankind, so also through one act of righteousness, the result was justification of life to all mankind. So the same standard by which we are condemned and made sinful through one, through one person, through one act of righteousness of Jesus Christ, we can all be justified. And because it's the same standard, it is considered a righteous standard. Verse 26, For the demonstration that is of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. This causes us to address the question that can present a dilemma sometimes. How can God justify sinners and remain just himself? God cannot simply pardon us of our sins and overlook them. Otherwise, he could not be considered righteous. He had to be both just and the justifier. So the Greek word for justifier means to declare righteous. To be justified is to be declared righteous. And that's, that's very important that we understand. It doesn't mean that we have earned righteousness. We have been declared. It's a declaration. Um, our justification is an act. It's not a process. There are not varying degrees of justification. When we are justified, when we're declared righteous, we have the same right standing relationship with God as every other person who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And that is because being declared righteous is something God does, not something that we obtain. Charles Swindle used a really good analogy that uh, if you go outside and you work, and you're going to work this time of year in the heat, you're going to get that, that layer of sweat, that film, and then you're going to be dirty and you're going to be nasty. So you come in and you take a shower, and it's one of the greatest showers you've ever had, and you step out and you feel so fresh. You don't stand there and say, it's as if I was never dirty. To say that would be to devalue the soap and the water, and it would devalue the experience of being washed clean. Instead, you sit there and say, I was, I was so dirty and nasty, but thank God I'm clean now. When we, when we stand as we are in our relationship with God, it's not as just I, if, if I'd never sinned. It's that I was dirty. I was a sinner. And the blood of Jesus Christ washed me clean. So today, have you tried to make yourself clean under your own power, under your own righteousness? Have you refused to accept that you're dirty to begin with? Or have you allowed the blood of Jesus Christ to allow you to be declared righteous today. Join me as we worship our righteous God.
Dylan, it's pretty crazy being up here with you guys, um, but yeah, 
Uh, Freddie T called me a couple weeks ago. Said, hey, what are you doing a couple weeks? I'm like, I have no idea. He's like, what do you think about doing a nine-minute sermon? I'm like, that sounds terrifying. Why would you ask me that? Uh, so we'll try to get through it. God is with us. So, um, yeah, the last couple weeks, though, I've been kind of preparing for this and really just uh, trying to understand the holiness of God. And uh, it's been pretty convicting for me. I hope it'll be beneficial to you. Uh, would you pray with me? Father God, we just thank you for this time. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Help us to understand you more. In Jesus' name we pray. All right, who's got the Bible with them? Break it out. Hold it up. Here we go. Bubba's in the house. I got you. Hey, it's the holy word of God, guys. Not a bad thing to carry around, so... Um, Anyways, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. We'll just read a little bit. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorpost and threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin to atone for. We just sang a song, I Can Only Imagine. Uh, pretty cool song. Let's just read this back to you real quick. I can only imagine what my eyes would see when your face is before me. I can only imagine. Surrounded by your glory, what, would my, what will my heart feel? Will I dance for you, Jesus? Or in all of you be still? Will I stand in your presence or to my knees will I fall? Will I sing hallelujah? Will I be able to speak at all? I can only imagine. Fantastic song. Um, the band, y'all killed it as always. Um, it's cool to hear that song and just think about really what's it gonna be like one day when we're standing in front of the God, of creator of the universe, God Almighty himself, what are we going to do? What's that going to be like? And as I studied the last couple of weeks, uh, there's actually a pattern that you see. We, we don't have to completely imagine because the scriptures, there's, there's several times where man or woman is face to face with God. They have a one-on-one encounter with, encounter with God. And there's a, there's a common response on the behalf of, of, of men. And that response is, is, is fear. Um, we saw it here uh, with Isaiah. We see it in, in Genesis with Adam in Genesis 3.10, Job 4.14, Jacob in Genesis 28.16 through 17. Like I said, here in Isaiah chapter six, he says, woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. I think it should probably be noted Isaiah was a prophet of God. I mean, he probably had problems like the rest of us, but he wasn't just your average Joe. He was, he was kind of, you know, he was, he was a prophet of God, but even still in the face of God himself, he, 
he cries, I am ruined. So the question is why? Why is that? Why is that our reaction? What I would say today, what the the scriptures I think teach is that it's because of just simply the pure holiness of God. It's not because God's standing up there scowling him. It's just because God is holy. There's only one time in all the scriptures where God's attribute of God is taken to the third degree. It's not... It's not love, 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 mercy, 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 wrath, 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 uh, righteousness. It's holy, holy, holy. He's all those things at one time. When we're standing face to face with God, we finally can fully realize how holy he is and how holy we aren't. A.W. Tozer said, until we have seeing ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. When Isaiah stood, stood before God, he, he felt it and he was disturbed by it. Go back to verses two through four with me. Above him were seraphim. These are, the seraphim are the highest level of angels in, in heaven. Each with six wings, with two they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying and they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the, God, is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. All right, let's, let's imagine for a second here, all right? Can we, can we all close our eyes? Everybody close our, let's close our eyes together. Really imagine. Imagine we walk in this room this morning and God's standing up here. Not, not me, not Freddie, not Tim, not Alex, but God himself is standing in front of you right now. You walk in, there's angels hovering in the room. Really imagine that. You walk in here and God is in here. Angels are hovering. The room is, the the angels are seeing holy, holy, holy. And the room is shaking and smoke is filling the place. What's your next move? If you walk in here and see that, what, what are you saying to God? What's your response? Okay, open our eyes. Here, here's my question. Did you walk up to him? Did you, did you give him a dap? What's up, God? Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. You, you give him a little high five? Hey, what's going, what's going on, man? Did you, did you walk up to him? You say, hey, God, I got a real bone to pick with you. You know, man, there were some real you know, bad things that happened to me. I can't believe you do that to me. You, you walk up to the holiest of gods and you say, this, this, this might, be, might be a common one. Oh, man. God, you're real. Huh. Well, well, hey, look, I was a little bit on the fence about all this, but, but God, let me tell you, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I was a good person. You saw, you saw what I was doing. I know you saw all the amazing things I did down on earth. Is that what you're telling God? Maybe you go before God and you say, God, I am, I am absolutely like Isaiah. I am ruined. Lord, have mercy on me. That's, that'd be a good start. The 
some of us think we're going to go before God and explain to him about what a good person we are. And that's just not how it is, guys. We fall short. We have to recognize that we are not that good. I'm not that good. I, ki- I joked earlier, ask my wife, she'll tell you I'm not that good. Come on, somebody. We think we are good because we compare ourselves to each other. We're not used to true holiness. I, th- I say, oh, well, you know, I got some problems, but man, I ain't got problems like that guy. I don't have problems like they've got problems. And we tell ourselves that we're, we're, we're good, but we're not really that good. The world wants to tell you you're good. It's all good. Do what you want to do. Everything will be fine. Just, just hey, you're good. It's, it feels good. Do it. The thing is, is anything you feel you want to do isn't all good before a perfect, holy God. And we got to realize it. And it should make a shake and that's good because Proverbs 9.10 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It was clear to Isaiah and he cried, woe is me, I am ruined, I'm dead, is what Isaiah cried out. Guys, this is a game changer. Fear and reverence for God is so important. Church, we miss this. We wanna start with love. We wanna start with what a beautiful plan God has for our life. We gotta start with who is God? Who is he? He's holy, holy, holy. And who are we? When, we? when we can really understand that, then we can really appreciate what he did for us. Isaiah 6, 6, the one, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that had been, he had taken with the tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. God loves us. He sees us and he sends out a healer named Jesus. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It's good to have fear and be reminded of who he is. And the better news is that when we're standing with King Jesus, it's all good. Guys, I got problems. I'm not perfect. I'm not good. Maybe you're not either. But whatever you've got going on, whatever, you know, anger, you know, addiction, lust, self-control, golly, we just, just, whatever's going on, you know what it is. He sent his son to die for you to make it all go away. You can stand before a holy, holy God, perfect with Jesus. I was ruined, but now I'm perfect. He's holy, holy, holy. Thank you, church. God bless.
fresh on us, Holy Spirit, like the morning dew. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Oh, yes. Day and night, night and day, let him censor Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you here in this incredible place. Um, this morning, I have the privilege and the honor to be able to talk to you about the attribute of God's omnipresence. And in the short time we have today, what I'll try and do is give you three points that we see in Scripture that I believe will be an encouragement to everyone in this room. Because if you know, of, if you know anything about God's omnipresence, um, it can be a beautiful comfort, or it could be some of the scariest news you'll ever hear. And that's because I believe that the God of our universe, if I could give you a simple definition of his omnipresence, it would be that his being, in his being, he is fully present everywhere. He is outside of time, space, and matter, and it is because he has created time, space, and matter. And we see that in the creation account before God had created anything, he was there. He is greater than it all. And this is the God of our world. And I know it's hard to understand. I know it's, I, we, we're not always going to be able to understand everything about it. But I, what I want you to do is I don't want you to think of God as just being bigger than what you can see or just bigger than this earth. God is without limitation. There, there is no beginning and there is no end to our God. And so this morning, 
Um, we're going to look at God's word. To know his presence is to look at the way he's revealed himself, and he's done that through his word. So let's go to Psalm chapter 139. Psalm 139, it's a psalm written by David where he describes the omnipresence of God. And we've got to go quickly, so if you don't get there, that's okay. Just listen in. We're starting in verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And I don't believe you have to look very deep at this passage to understand that David is talking about God's presence. And I know that David here is using poetic language. He's using figurative language to talk about how even in his darkest moments, God is there and he's with him. And in his highest moments, God is there and he is with him. But I also believe he is talking about the presence of God. That yes, there's nothing that can hold our God in the heavens. God is there. And in the deepest, uttermost parts of the sea, God is also there. Because wherever David goes, he knows that God is already there. And he's working everything out. And so that's our first point. This has to be the foundation for us to look at God's omnipresence, and it is that. God is omnipresent. That's our first point. And with this as our foundation, we can move to our second point. Because God is omnipresent, we cannot hide from God. Can, can we keep it real this morning? That's our church, right? Keep it real, keep it Jesus. Can I share a story? It's kind of embarrassing. Yes, no? Okay, sweet. Um, every time I think about hiding, I think about this story. So growing up, um, and I'm still growing up, so don't hear me when I say growing up. I'm, I'm still growing up. When I was younger, um, I just went through this phase that I loved to scare people. I loved to surprise my family. And so I'd hide around corners. I'd, I'd wait in the dark, and I'd just, boom. Maybe, maybe I had a weird childhood. Maybe I was weird growing up. Um, but there was, there was someone that I could never scare in my family. It was my dad. And there's something about dads, right? They're, they're invincible. And so I'd come up with all these different ways, and I could never scare them. But finally, and and this is one of the weird things I did as a kid. I finally came up with a plan. I noticed that my dad would always do the same thing each week. He'd come up to my room. He'd grab my dirty clothes. He'd wash them, dry them, and get them ready for me for the, for the next week, right, like a good dad would. And then I had the idea, I'm going to take all my dirty clothes out. I'm going to get in the dirty clothes basket, and that's when I'm going to get them. There's no way he's going to think that I'm going to be in here, right? He's going to think I'm asleep. I know, super weird, but we're here. So I did that ju just that. I finally scared him. He, would, he never would have thought that I would have gone to such that length to scare him. But I didn't recognize something in this story until I was preparing for this time. That I thought I had the best hiding spot in the world, but I was never completely hidden. If we look at Genesis 3, and we look at the fall of man, and we, we can see so clearly the difference between Adam and Eve before the fall and after the fall. And it just shows the difference and the distortion that sin has in our life. And we're talking about Adam and Eve, the people that God had given responsibility and dominion over all creation that God made in his image and declared to be very good and even walked with God in the cool of the day. These are the people that are trying to, ha trying to hide from God. 
Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. We can see here that Adam and Eve, they're really bad at hiding. And the God that made them with his, with his own breath knew this. And Adam and Eve, exposed in their nakedness, even tried to hide their guilt and their shame by sewing fig leaves together. And when we think about God's infinite presence, his omnipresence, it's kind of silly, right? How, why would they think that they could hide? And I don't want you to get, I don't want you to get stopped at verse 9 and be confused when, when God says, where are you? I believe that God understands completely the entire situation between himself and man that there is now a divide that sin has created. And what he wants them to do is he wants them to come forward and, and tell, tell God exactly what they've done. Because I think right here we're a lot like Adam and Eve. We think that no one knows our sin, that no one, even the most discreet places, we think we can hide. No one will ever find out. And you might have wished as you're coming in this morning that these lights would finally turn off and that you could hide amongst the crowd. But let me tell you, today and always, you are completely seen. Everything that you've done in the past, everything that you've done that you're doing now and everything that you will do is completely seen and known by God. And that our sin comes with a price. That is death. It's eternal separation from God, and we see here at the end of chapter 3, God kicking Adam and Eve out of the garden because of their rebellion. And if we stopped here, that'd be really bad news, but I told you, I believe God's omnipresence can be a beautiful comfort, and so that leads us to point three. Now, we can hide in God. Because God is omnipresent, we cannot hide from God, but now we can hide in God. So what does that mean, and why is it good news well, if we want to be in a right relationship with God, something has to pay the price for our sins. Somehow, some way, our punishment has to be satisfied, and that's what Jesus did. God gave up his son so that on the cross, he would take on our sin and our guilt. Jesus was naked and crowned with thorns, and what he did is he despised the shame and the pain in his death so that we could have new life. Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. On the cross, there was nowhere Jesus could hide. He took on the full wrath of God and gave us, in exchange for our sin and our shame, he gave us our, his righteousness. And if we believe in him, he gives us his Holy Spirit. That's God's presence in us. Guys, we've been given new life. The old self is, is gone away. You have new life in Jesus. There is no reason we should want to hide. Why, why should we want to hide from such a generous father? From such a generous father who has given so much so that we might know his comforting presence. And I believe today God can be your shelter. He can be your refuge. And even in our weakest moments, he 
can be our strength. He's assured us of our hope and our eternal future in him through his son's resurrection. He did not stay dead. He showed that he has overcome the world. He's overcome sin and death. Thank you, Jesus. And so what he wants to tell you today, what he wants you to do today, I believe, is he wants you to to tell him who you are and what you've done. Confess that before a holy and righteous God so that he can have a relationship with you. And you don't have to continue living this life feeling like you're alone. And and that's the beauty and the comfort that comes in knowing that our God is omnipresent. If you would, please, please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are here present in this room with us as we worship and as we lift up your name. Lord, our sin has separated from separated us from you. But God, thank you that we do not have to stay in that place isolated away from such a good and loving Father. You have made a way through your Son, Jesus, and have given us new life. He took on our sin and our shame so that we might have your righteousness, so that we would be in a right relationship with you. And now we can go on each and every day just like David did, knowing that whatever situation we're in, God, you are with us. Your hand is upholding us and you are guiding us in life, Lord. We don't have to live with this feeling like we're alone any longer, Lord. We don't have to hide from you any longer. Now in Christ, we can hide in you and know that our future, our hope is assured because Jesus is alive and is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Thank you, Lord. We love you. And I pray all of this in your heavenly name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We trust that God is stirring something special in your heart today. We hope to see you on Sunday very soon. Keep it real. Keep it Jesus.